Our Father, we thank you that you are a solid rock that we can stand on, that even when we grow tired and weary, that your strength never, ever fades. And Lord, I know that all of us grow tired and weary at times. I mean, think of Litha with the two young boys in her house. And we pray for strength and perseverance for her as she parents them and handles a variety of other details in her life. Lord, we pray for each one of us that we will all have the strength and the resilience and the perseverance that we need to follow you and to make the choices that we need to make in our lives in order to prioritize you and in order to live lives that honor you and lives in which we truly enjoy you, Lord. So now as we open your word together this morning, we pray that you will be our teacher, that your spirit will come and work inside of each one of us, Lord, to bring your word to life so that we are not merely hearers of the word, but also doers of the word as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the 1980s, there was a phrase that became very common around this nation, and especially in our nation's schools. The phrase is just say no. I can't tell you how many times I heard this phrase as I was growing up. Just say no is a phrase that Nancy Reagan, who was the first lady at that time, popularized. It was a phrase that was a slogan of a national organization called DARE, which stands for Drug Abuse. Um, Completely just forgot the name, so I'll look at it. Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Um, and, And so this phrase, just say no, was very popular. It was used all over the place, and it was basically telling teenagers and students that if you are pressured to use drugs or alcohol, just say no. If you are pressured to have sex, just say no. If you're pressured to engage in violent activities or or get into gangs, just say no. And the premise of this is great. I mean, I I certainly agree with anything that's going to help keep children or teenagers or adults or anyone else off drugs and alcohol and um, other things that are going to be very unhealthy for them. But it's interesting when you look at studies about the effectiveness of education programs such as D.A.R.E. and this Just Say No campaign. Because study after study has shown that, that, that educational programs like this are marginal at best in their effectiveness at helping people actually live with healthier behaviors long term. In fact, back in 2001, the Surgeon General of the United States uh, placed the D.A.R.E. program on a, on a list in a category that says this does not work because, um, because the, the, the results were showing, you know what? The results are marginal at best of, of long-term change as a result of these educational programs. And it wasn't the fault of the curriculum or of the idea behind it. The fault was with human nature. Because programs like this that educated students or or even adults on what they should and should not do don't necessarily take into account the fact that we need self-control in order to fulfill these things. And teenagers and children and even adults are are well known for not always having the best self-control, especially in the face of pressures or temptations. I mean, even adults, we struggle with self-control. I mean, you have a piece of chocolate cake sitting in the refrigerator, and, and odds are good it's going to be calling your name. It's going to want you to come and eat it. And as often as not, maybe more often than not, we're going to go eat that cake if it's calling our name. When you have a guy who's surfing the Internet, and it's very tempting at times if you have a pornographic website that's just to click away to just say no. Or if you have someone who's just pushing your buttons, who's getting under your skin, who's very difficult to deal with, and you just want to let them have it, it's really hard in those circumstances to just say no. 
But we also have to recognize that self-control is incredibly important. If we want to be the men and women who we want to be and who God's calling us to be, we need self-control. So today we're going to look in the Scriptures to see, okay, God calls us to live with self-control, but how do we really do that, especially in light of the fact that we all easily give in amidst pressures and temptations? So I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we are concluding a series today called The Fruit of the Spirit, and it's based on nine character qualities that the Apostle Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5. And these nine qualities are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And over the last couple of months, we have been spending one week in each one of these character qualities, and the Apostle Paul says that if the Holy Spirit is in the driver's seat of our lives... These qualities will be manifested in and through us. And today we're looking at this quality of self-control. And in the passage we're looking at here in Matthew 26, it features Jesus and his disciples in a a time uh, of, of very high emotions. It's in the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, and it really gives us a great example of what biblical self-control looks like. So I'm going to read Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. There is a lot in this passage. This is, I think, the third different time I've I've preached through this passage during the last five years. Um, And each time we look at it from a different angle. Usually we look at it around the time leading up to Easter and Good Friday. But today we're looking at it to gain three keys for how we live with self-control that is powered by the Holy Spirit. And the first key that we see here is the importance of preparing before the temptation comes. I mean, you look at Jesus. He is taking his disciples uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. This was an olive grove just outside of Jerusalem. They oftentimes went there, but he is going there, and it says that he is very sorrowful, very troubled, because he knows what's going to be coming up in the next 24 hours. He knows that he is going to be betrayed by one of his followers, that one of his closest friends, Peter, is going to deny three times that he even knows Jesus, that he's going to be arrested that he is going to be mocked, that he is going to be beaten to the point where the muscles and the bones in his back are exposed, 
that he's going to be crucified, which is one of the most terrible forms of execution ever devised. And then as he's on that cross, that he's going to bear the wrath of the Heavenly Father for all the sins of humanity. Certainly not an easy process to go through. And, and like I said, it says that Jesus is, is very troubled, very sorrowful. He says he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now we may wonder why. Okay, Jesus, this is why you came to earth. You talked many, many times about how ultimately you're going to your death in order to pay for the sins of the world. Why are you so sorrowful and troubled here? Well, I think we have to remember that Jesus is not only fully God, but he's also fully human. And this human part of him was trembling at the thought of what he was about to go through, the pain, the anguish, the suffering, the wrath of God upon him. And so we see Jesus telling his disciples to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, is in their circle a little bit farther, and he tells them, you know what, you all also need to be praying right now. And then we see Jesus himself going to pray. And the reason that Jesus was praying was to prepare himself for what was coming. He was going to God and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. God, there's this part of me that doesn't really want to go through with all of this pain and anguish that I'm about to experience. Please give me the strength that I need to persevere. So Jesus was preparing himself for what was about to come. Now, you contrast this with the disciples, on the other hand. What were they doing? Well, Jesus told them to pray, but time and time and time again, they were sleeping. They were not preparing themselves for what was about to come. So one of the times Jesus comes to them and says, um, couldn't you men keep watch with me for even an hour? Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what Jesus is pointing to here is that we are very willing but we are also very weak. We are weak in and of ourselves. When, when it says here the Spirit is willing, it's not referring to the Holy Spirit, even though he is referred many times in Scripture to as the Spirit. Here it's referring to the Spirit within ourselves, our mentality, our attitude, our desires. And many times in our lives, we have noble, good desires for what we want to carry out and fulfill. But we don't have the ability or we don't have the motivation to actually do what we want to do. And we think about various goals that we set for ourselves. We want to exercise on a regular basis. We want to eat well. We want to stop smoking. We want to stop yelling at the kids. We want to stop dabbling in internet pornography. We want to um, manage our money well. We want to have a healthy marriage. We want to read the Bible more. We want to do this and this and this and this. And we set our goals and our New Year's resolutions. We have great intentions in it. But so oftentimes, these things that we set as our goals fall short because we lack the ability or the motivation to follow through. We are willing, but we are very weak because, as Jesus said, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Even look at Peter. Peter here is a tremendous example of someone who's very willing, but someone who's very weak. If you look at the passage just before this passage that we read earlier, we see, see Peter's willingness to remain faithful to Christ. Backing up to verse 31, Jesus said to his disciples, this is at the very end of what's known as the Last Supper, the night before uh, Jesus was crucified. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you in the Galilee. So Jesus said, okay, you're all going to fall away from me tonight. 
Well, what did Peter say? Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So, so he has very high hopes for himself. Then, then Jesus turned directly to Peter and said, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So you would think by this point in Jesus' ministry, is three years with Peter, that Peter would have learned to trust what Jesus says, that Jesus doesn't lie, he doesn't exaggerate, that if Jesus says something, you better listen to it. But Peter still has such high hopes for himself. He says in verse 35, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So Peter, I mean, he certainly did not lack the desire to stay faithful to Christ. And he's making promises that he's going to stay faithful to the end, even to the point of death. But if we know the story of what happens, you know that it doesn't take very long after, they, after Jesus is arrested for Peter then to deny even knowing Jesus three separate times. And I think much of it goes back to this reality that Peter did not prepare himself for the temptations and the pressures that he was going to face. His spirit is willing, but his flesh was weak. And so when we are thinking about combating temptations in our lives, it's very important that we are well prepared for the temptations that come our way so that we can exert self-control in those circumstances rather than being caught off guard. This is why, for instance, in our family, pretty much every time that we are preparing to go into a store or into a restaurant or into someone else's home, we have a discussion in our van with our kids before we get to that location about what we are and are not going to do when we get in there. If we don't have that discussion, things usually go very, very poorly. A few weeks ago, I we went in the subway, forgot to have the discussion. There's a line of temptation known as potato chips right there as you walk in. We had a meltdown. Ended up getting the chips. You go into Aldi. You have temptation aisle right there. You have the sweets on one side, the chips on the other side. You better have had that conversation before you go in there. If you have it, it usually goes pretty well. But if you don't have it, the self-control is not existent. And once it's gone, it's tough to get back. I mean, things are multiplied. I mean, go into even the hardware store up at Drew's True Value. You go in there. If you don't have the conversation beforehand about what you can and cannot touch, that you need to look with your eyes, not with your hands, well, they're touching everything, pulling everything off the shelves, trying the toys in the aisles, trying on all the gloves. Preparation beforehand helps so much. It's the same regardless of age. You know what? Most temptations that come our way are not surprise attacks. If we're honest with ourselves, we all know what our vulnerabilities are. And so we need to recognize, okay, if being around this particular person generally causes us to get in a really bad mood or to gossip a lot or to talk about really negative, unhealthy things, well, you need some advanced preparation. Perhaps you need to avoid that person. Um, Or at the very least, prepare yourself. Bathe yourself in prayer before you enter that situation. If you know that you have a problem with alcohol and you're going to, and you have an opportunity to go into a situation where there's going to be alcohol available, well, it's probably a good recommendation to prepare yourself by not even going. Or if you are going to go, get accountability, get an action plan for what you're going to do there. Prepare in advance because advanced preparation can really help. But it's not the end of the story. This is where a lot of education programs about what you need to do and what you don't need to do, that you need to just say no and stuff like that, that's where they oftentimes stop that you educate yourself and prepare yourself for what you need to do in those situations. Well, okay, when you're faced with pressure, just say no. 
But we need to understand that, that our, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So we need further steps beyond that. And that is where we get into true spirit-powered self-control. And that leads us to the second point here about how we exhibit this self-control, and that is to surrender to God. Look with me to what Jesus was praying here. We know that Jesus prayed multiple times here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 39, we see he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. A little bit later in verse 42, he prays something quite similar. He says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, there is reference here multiple times to this idea of drinking a cup. And we need to understand that this is a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament of the cup of God's wrath. And that's the ultimate reason why Jesus died on the cross, was to pay the penalty we deserve for us and to bear the wrath that we deserve so that we, through faith in him, could go free and not have to face God's condemnation and judgment for our sin. It's a tremendous gift that he offers. But rather than focusing on that right now, I want to focus on this other phrase that is in here. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. And this is an attitude of surrender. You know, in prayer, it's good to, to really just ask God for whatever is on our minds. I mean, there, in my mind, there's pretty much no topic that is inherently off limits in asking God about in prayer. But at the end of every prayer, our attitude and perhaps even our words need to be, you know what, God? Not my will, but yours be done. May your will be done because I know that ultimately your will is best. It's an act of surrender. No, there's a major irony here when talking about self-control. If you look in Galatians chapter 5 at the list of these fruit of the Spirit and self-control being the final one, the word in the original language, which is Greek there, is actually a compound word made up of two Greek words. The main word is the word for power or strength. And added to it is a prefix that means in or within. So self-control literally means strength within, inner power, inner strength. Now, the irony here is that self-control, this inner strength, is called a fruit of the Spirit. So essentially it's saying that this inner strength doesn't come from us, it comes from God. Now, if this inner strength, this self-control, came from us, we don't have any need for the Holy Spirit. We all recognize we are weak. We don't have that level of inner strength ourselves, so we need the Holy Spirit to come and empower us. So this inner strength, this self-control, is not ultimately self-control, it's actually yielding to God's control in our lives. So ultimately, self-control is not merely just saying no to the temptations, which is what we oftentimes think of. It is that partly. But it's also just say yes to the Holy Spirit. Say, yes, Holy Spirit, I want you to come take the driver's seat of my life. Yes, Holy Spirit, I want you to, to guide me through the situation. Give me the strength I need because I don't have the strength in and of myself because I am weak. And when we submit the driver's seat of our lives to the Holy Spirit, it really opens up the, 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 the vista to a whole new realm of life, a new kind of life, the life that God is calling us to live, the life that's characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, a life that is characterized by a purpose and an identity that we can't gain from anywhere in this world. So oftentimes, so much of our lives is invested in trying to gain a sense of security and significance and identity based on our performance and our, and our achievements and our talents and things like that. And those things aren't bad, but they aren't a great basis 
for identity and significance and purpose. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to be in the driver's seat of our lives, he will give us a purpose and significance and identity that nothing else can. It's a new life that's only available through Christ, and it's only available by surrendering to him. That's why it says over in Galatians chapter 5, just after the list of the fruits of the Spirit, Paul writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He says we need to crucify ourselves in our own selfish desires. We need to say no to those things and then say yes to the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with him, allowing him the driver's seat of our lives. And then he will bear the fruit of the Spirit in and through us and give us this new life. So surrendering to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to control us and give us the strength we need is absolutely essential to living with the Spirit-powered self-control. Just saying no isn't enough. We don't have the willpower in and of ourselves to say no over the long term in the face of pressure and temptation. But surrendering to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to empower us is the key. Now, there is also one third key that I want to point out from this passage and from other parts of Scripture, and that is to embrace accountability. Jesus essentially was offering Peter accountability uh, multiple different times here in these last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life before crucifixion. One time in Luke 22, in, in the Last Supper, Jesus told Peter, 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 Satan wishes to sift you as wheat. I've prayed for you. And he said, when you return, um, I mean, feed my sheep and stuff like that. But, but Jesus was giving Peter a warning that there were going to be hard times coming. We see multiple times in this passage, Jesus warns Peter. Jesus warns Peter. He's holding him accountable, saying, Peter, you need to pay attention. You need to make sure that you are ready for this temptation. Surrender to God rather than trying to get through on your own power. Jesus is trying to hold Peter accountable to this. And later on, and this is very encouraging for us when we do fail, later on, after Jesus is resurrected, he restores Peter. He does hold him accountable. He calls him to account for Peter's waywardness. But also Jesus restores Peter, and Peter becomes a major leader in the early church. So there is hope even when we do give in to temptation. There is forgiveness without a doubt. But we need accountability, and accountability is essentially just having people around us Help us to keep our commitments to God and others. That's really what we need uh, in our lives. There, there was a study at Northwestern University a few years ago that placed college students in tempting settings. Temptations to smoke, temptations to, to eat junk food, temptations to um, skip studying. I mean, these are all temptations that are, well, for various people. Um, smoking really isn't that tempting to me, but I know for many it is. Skipping studying or junk food are tempting to me. Um, we all face temptations, and one of the outcomes of the study was that we all have what is called a restraint bias. And what that means is that we are biased to overestimate our own strength of restraint in the face of temptation. And, and the conclusion of the study was that those who are the most confident about their self-control are the most likely to give in to temptation. It's ironic, and it's actually very biblical, because 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 says, If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. So if you think you're standing firm, if you're very confident in your own ability to get through pressure and temptation, that's actually setting you up to fall, and perhaps to fall very hard, because temptations and pressures 
will come. And we need accountability. I mean, surrender to the Holy Spirit is where we get that power. But many times we are obstinate. Many times we aren't really interested in submitting to the Holy Spirit or we're blind to where we're depending on ourselves. And we need other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, to come around us and support us and hold us accountable and help us to keep our commitments to God and others. Many of you know uh, that I enjoy bicycling. It's a hobby I've picked up since I've come here uh, to Port Washington. I love the Ozaki Interurban Trail. I go biking usually about three times a week, usually pulling my kids in the bike trailer behind me. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I, I got a new little toy for my bike, uh, new pedals and new shoes that clip into the pedals. Um, and it increases your efficiency, your control, um, I heard many warnings from people who've used these types of pedals before. I mean, they're, they're very common for people who are pretty serious bikers. But I've met very few people who've transitioned to these pedals but have not fallen at least once when learning how to use them. There's a big learning curve. So, so my family and I had been talking about this a lot, about this transition to these pedals and these new shoes. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be very, very careful, going to be very cognizant of the fact I'm always in these, in these special uh, pedals and shoes so that way I uh, take my feet out when I need to stop and stuff like that because I don't want to fall. So we were biking on that first day I was using them just a couple weeks ago. We were getting into Grafton. Micaiah, my son, yells from the cart behind me, Dad, I'm going to make sure that you don't fall. And I'd been thinking about this, um, and I was like, I was thinking in my mind, Micaiah, that's a great sentiment, but how are you going to do that? You're strapped into the cart behind me. So I asked him, how are you going to keep me from falling, Micaiah? And I think at that instant, he realized the absurdity of what he said. Because he realized, okay, I'm kind of stuck back here. I'm not really sure how I'm going to do this. So he thought for about 20 seconds. Then I heard him say, Dad, I'm going to keep a close eye on you. So he's going to keep a close eye on me to keep me from falling. And honestly, at that point, I was feeling pretty good about, you know what? I've made it quite a few miles. I haven't fallen yet. This is pretty easy. Well, you know where the story's going. Not, less, not more than five minutes later, I'm at a four-way stop in the north end of Grafton. I have to stop because there's another car. I have to come to a full stop. So I take one of my feet out of the pedals and put, put it down on the ground. My left foot's still attached to the pedal. Well, the car goes through the intersection. I pull my foot back up to try to start going. Well, the bike starts going too far that way. My left foot's still in there. Next thing I know, plop. Plop right down my gr- on the ground on my side. And the kids, I think, were just shocked back there. I mean, the connector is very flexible, so they didn't get hurt. They're still just standing upright. But, but they're pretty shocked. Here I am laying on the ground, still attached to the bicycle. I picked myself back up, just slightly humbling, because there were two other cars right in the area, another bicyclist who gave me a nice big smile and a high when he went by. Um, but I picked myself back up, and after, after the kids got over their shock, they, they thought it was really hilarious. And Micaiah actually told me, Dad, do that again. I'm like, no. Um, but here's the thing. Micaiah, he was very intent on watching me closely to make sure that I would not fall off the bike. That did zero ounces of good in actually preventing me from following. I, I, I was in a situation where my, my feet were literally tied. I could not help myself. I was just learning, and I fell hard. And that's what happens many times with temptation and pressure, that the temptations and pressures are so great that in and of ourselves, no matter how hard we try, we're going to fall. And Micaiah's accountability didn't really help at all because he wasn't actually able to do much. He was just able to watch. 
And many times I think that's what happens with accountability among Christians, is that we have Christians who give lip service to caring, who say they'll pray for you, who might ask occasionally, oh, how's it going? But that's about it. That's where it stops. And so we have bystanders, passive bystanders, who are watching fellow Christians struggle with sin, watching fellow Christians make decisions or indecisions that are slowly leading them away from Christ or sometimes very quickly leading them away, leading them to a big crash. And what we need in these circumstances, because we're all prone to this failure, we need men and women who will come around us and help hold us accountable, who will ask us the hard questions, who will encourage us, who will pray for us, who will be right there to share life with us, who can help us to remember to submit to the Holy Spirit's leadership in this issue rather than trying to get through it under your own strength, who will help point out our blind spots, who will encourage us and give us grace and point us to Christ when we fail so that we don't beat ourselves up unnecessarily. We need that support and that accountability from Christians around us. That's why one of the um, disciple-making values that we have here at the church is called High Invitation, High Challenge. The invitation talks about building trust and love and care, but the challenge talks about the accountability and encouragement to grow. I mean, in the phrase that accompanies this value is disciples like children thrive in a gospel-rich environment that balances love and trust with accountability and encouragement to grow. We need both. We need both the love and the trust, but also the accountability and encouragement to grow. And one of the things we've been working on here at the church for a long time is trying to figure out how do we get that? How do we have more than just education about things? Because you know what? Here on Sunday mornings, you can get great information. You can get information through the sermons. You can get information through Sunday morning classes. But how do we go beyond that? Because mere information, even about the Bible and about God, doesn't necessarily transform us if we don't apply it. So what we've been working on is trying to clarify how do we get deeper? How do we especially get that accountability and encouragement to grow? And so... So what we've been doing is just clarifying, okay, what are we doing and how are we doing it? How are we seeking to make disciples? And one of the things that we have clarified is that Sunday mornings, in terms of, of the worship service, in terms of the Sunday morning classes for all ages, Sunday mornings are designed to equip us and to inspire us to follow God. But we also recognize there are limitations in what takes place on Sunday mornings. You can get the education, you can get the equipping, you can get the inspiration, but oftentimes on Sunday mornings, you don't get the deeper level of accountability. You don't get the life-on-life -life sharing type of thing. You don't get the camaraderie on a personal level quite as much. So we need something else that will take us deeper. And we have Bible studies. We have small groups. We have a lot of good things. But one of the things we're going to be focusing on that you'll hear more about in the coming months is what we call huddles. Huddles are groups of two to four people of the same gender who commit to meeting on a regular basis, typically a couple times a month or so, um, to help each other not just know biblical knowledge, but to actually apply it. I mean, it's real, where you're really sharing life together, praying for one another personally, holding each other accountable, encouraging one another, helping each other take the biblical truths that are in our head and actually put them into practice. Now, you'll be hearing more about this in the coming months, but I just wanted to give a preview. And, and, and the, the goal here is where Sunday mornings equip and inspire, these huddles um, are designed to really help us to experience this life based on this up-and-out triangle of the up relationship with God, the in relationship with other Christians, and the out relationship with the surrounding world. It's helping us to take these things that we know and to apply them. 
because we need that accountability. We need the encouragement to help us to have the self-control that we need to say no to the things that we need to say no to so that we can say yes to the Holy Spirit and his leadership in our lives. Now, as we come to the end of the series, I just want to point out something about the unique order of the fruit of the Spirit. It starts with joy. I believe that or it doesn't start with joy. It starts with love. I believe that God inspired Paul specifically to put love at the head of this list of nine qualities to help us understand that love is foundational to everything else here. Love is essential if we want to be patient, if we want to be kind, if we want to be gentle, if we want to be faithful, and on and on. But I also believe that God inspired Paul specifically to put self-control at the end of the list because none of these other eight qualities are going to be possible if we don't live out a significant degree of self-control. Because we need self-control to help us not, have, not get impatient with people. We need self-control to help us to put aside our own agendas so that we can love others fully. We need self-control so that rather than speaking harshly or angrily, we can speak and act kindly and gently to others. We need self-control to live out all these fruits of the Spirit. And we, I think we all recognize that, that pursuing instant gratification, which is what our society is largely built on, it doesn't lead to true life and happiness and joy. The things that really matter in life that we want for ourselves and that God wants for us, they take time and perseverance and they take self-control to say no to the things that don't ultimately satisfy so that we can say yes to the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent Christ so that in those times where we do fail, because we know we all do, that we have Christ that we can look to. And we know that in Christ and through faith in him, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you will help us to all live out this new life that Christ makes available to us, saying no to the temptations that, that won't ultimately help us, and saying yes to the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives. We pray these things for us as individuals and us as a church in Jesus' name. Amen.